Childhood Cancer. I'm Dr. Jeff, a paediatric oncologist, and this podcast is really designed for parents of children with cancer, but also for anyone else who's involved in caring for children with cancer. And like I've said before, I wish we didn't have to have a podcast like this, because it just doesn't seem right. Today I'm going to be talking about a type of brain tumour that occurs in children called medulloblastoma medulloblastoma and medulloblastoma is the most common malignant brain tumor that occurs in children and it accounts for about 20% of brain tumors that occur in children so it's an important disease now in particular what I've got to say today is mostly relevant for the patients over the age of about three or five years of age with medulloblastoma. A lot of what I say is relevant to younger patients, but in the younger patients under the age of about three or four or five years, we tend to rely more on chemotherapy and less on radiotherapy. So I hope I'll do a separate uh, podcast episode at some point to talk about them. Now, it would be useful if you'd listened into my earlier episode that was an introduction to the brain tumours of childhood because that would have talked about hydrocephalus and a few other things and probably would be good if you'd listened into the episode on chemotherapy and on radiotherapy just so you know what I'm talking about some of the time. But anyway, what is medulloblastoma? Well, medulloblastoma is a tumour that develops in what we call the posterior fossa of the brain. So the posterior fossa is sort of the bottom of the brain. Uh, If you put your hand on the back of your neck and then you start to run your hand up the back of your skull, in there, that's where the posterior fossa is and that's where medulloblastomas arise, in that area of the brain. In particular, it's an area called the cerebellum and the fourth ventricle, if you really want to know. Now, what about the name of it, medulloblastoma? Okay, first the medullo bit. When you look at the brain, we have an area of brain called the brain stem. And the brain stem is made up of the midbrain, the pons, and at the bottom, the medulla. So that's where medullo comes from, that, um, that part of the brain stem called the medulla. Now, what about blastoma? Well, blastoma is a term you'll see in a lot of paediatric cancers. There's neuroblastoma, there's nephroblastoma in the kidney, and there's medulloblastoma in the brain. And blastoma normally sort of refers to tumours that the pathologist thought looked a bit like some of the embryonal, embryonic tissues. You know, the tissues that were in our bodies before we were ever born and when we were embryos. So... Blastoma normally means it's a cancer that looks a bit like some of those cells. That doesn't mean it was there when we were an embryo. It doesn't mean it was there when we were born. It's just a crazy pathologist term, uh, blastoma, that refers to 
the appearances of the cell, reminding them of those primitive early tissues. So that's why it's called medulloblastoma. Now, it gets more confusing. Another name for it is primitive neuroectodermal tumour, P-N-E-T, primitive neuroectodermal tumour. The problem is that a PNET in the brain can also occur elsewhere in the brain. So it can occur in the top of the brain, for instance. And for a long time, we thought that a PNET in the top of the brain and a medulloblastoma were really the same sort of tumour. They were just in a different location. These days, we've stopped thinking that. Nowadays, we think of the PNET that occurs in the top part of the brain as probably being a different tumour biologically compared to medulloblastoma. But for a period of time, medulloblastomas were referred to sometimes as a PNET of the posterior fossa. So that gets confusing. And just to make it even more confusing, there's another tumour that can occur in children outside the brain that also is called a PNET, but that's a totally different tumour. And that one's more like a Ewing sarcoma. Next, I want to talk about how children with a medulloblastoma turn up to the doctors. Well, from my earlier episode on brain tumours, you would have heard my discussion on hydrocephalus. Hydrocephalus is a problem where the fluid that your brain normally makes in the top of the brain gets blocked by the tumour, so it can't flow out of the brain and down to the spinal cord. So the fluid keeps being produced and it eventually ends up under a lot of pressure because it's meeting a roadblock as the tumour blocks the flow of the spinal fluid. And that's hydrocephalus. And so a lot of the time the symptoms that children have with medulloblastoma are caused by the hydrocephalus. And typically they include a headache and often a headache that's worse in the morning and slowly gets better as the day goes on. They may be nauseated and vomiting, and then as it gets more severe, they can become drowsy or, you know, even unconscious in extreme cases. And all of that's caused by what we call raised intracranial pressure. So the buildup of fluid is putting the brain under pressure, and that explains a lot of those symptoms. Now, the tumour itself is compressing some of the normal nerves in the brain, And so some children end up with what we call ataxia. Ataxia is unsteadiness on your feet. And so walking a bit more unsteadily, maybe with the feet wider apart, changes in coordination, that's all what we call ataxia. Some children develop a head tilt for some reason. They tilt their head off to one side. And I'm not sure why. Maybe it's because it relieves the headache a bit or maybe it makes their eyes point more parallel. But anyway, a headache and head tilt and ataxia, they're real classic symptoms of a tumour in the posterior fossa. There are other tumours, by the way, that can occur in this location, sometimes ependymoma, sometimes astrocytoma. They can all present with this same sort of pattern of symptoms and signs. Anyway, eventually the patient will have come to the doctors and some scans will have been done Maybe a CT scan was done first, and or maybe an MRI scan was done. But eventually an MRI scan would be the best way to get a good look at the tumour. So firstly, the acute problems have to be managed. And in particular, if there's hydrocephalus, then the neurosurgical team will normally be in charge of coordinating the patient's care. 
and they'll need to deal with that raised pressure that occurs with hydrocephalus. And they might use some steroids, so dexamethasone, to reduce the raised pressure. They may have to drain the fluid. Sometimes they have to put a drain through the skull and into the ventricle to drain the fluid out to a bag by the bedside. Or they might do an operation to bypass the blockage somehow. Sometimes they can put in something called a shunt, a bit of tubing that'll go from the ventricles to elsewhere in the body to get the fluid out. Sometimes they do something called a third ventriculostomy. This is all beyond me. This is for the brain surgeons. But in any event, they have to manage the raised pressure, stabilise the patient, and then think about operating on the tumour. Now, they might operate on the tumour in the same operation as they address the raised pressure, or they might reduce the pressure and then plan to operate a few days later. The surgeon will then proceed to remove the tumour. And these are big, long operations. They can take hours and hours and hours. Big time neurosurgery. Then the tumour will be sent off to the pathologists. And the pathologists will look at it with the microscope and determine what sort of tumour it is. And if they see that it's a medulloblastoma, well, they'll also do extra tests and then they can look at it and see is it a classic medulloblastoma Is it a desmoplastic medulloblastoma or is it an anaplastic medulloblastoma? These are all different appearances under the microscope and they're all of some relevance in determining the relative seriousness of a particular case of medulloblastoma. The new thing that's come up is that we can now divide medulloblastomas into four different groups according to all the DNA tests that you can do on the tumour. I'm not going to talk about that today because it deserves a podcast episode of its own, but the way of the future in medulloblastoma really is to determine which of these new groups of medulloblastoma a particular tumour fits into because it very much influences the chance to cure the tumour and it might change the way we treat those tumours in the future. Anyway, the patient needs to recover from this big operation They'll normally get an MRI scan of the brain performed, often the very next day. And in cases of medulloblastoma, we'll also want to get an MRI scan of the spine to look for any evidence that medulloblastoma has spread. See, this is one of the things medulloblastomas can do. They can spread through the spinal fluid and cause little deposits of tumour to grow elsewhere in the brain and spinal cord. So we do an MRI scan of the spine to see if there's any sign of little nodules of tumour on the spinal cord. That would be called leptomeningeal spread of the tumour. And that's an undesirable thing. We don't want to see leptomeningeal spread of the tumour. It makes for a more serious case of medulloblastoma and one that needs heavier treatment to follow. The other thing that we'll do, usually two weeks after the surgery, is something called a lumbar puncture. So that's a spinal tap. You know, it's like a uh, it's like a needle that is used for an epidural, except that the needle is pushed in a little bit further to take off a few mils of the spinal fluid, and then that spinal fluid is sent to the pathologists, and they centrifuge it, and they're looking to see if there's any malignant cells in the spinal fluid. That also would represent leptomeningeal spread of the disease and that would also make for a more serious situation. So the two main ways that we look for spread of medulloblastoma 
uh, with the MRI scan of the brain and spine and then the lumbar puncture to test the spinal fluid and look for any malignant cells. Now with that lumbar puncture, of course, we only do it when the surgeon says it's safe to do so. So they have to be sure that the pressure in the brain has reduced and it's safe to do a lumbar puncture. So the patient gets on with recovering while we're doing all of this because it has been a big operation. By now we know that the patient has a medulloblastoma and we can do something called risk stratification and that means we can work out what treatment needs to follow and what are the chances to cure the particular patient. And the key things in that risk stratification are to look at how completely was the tumour removed. So on that post-operative MRI scan, we would like to see as little as possible of the tumour that is still there. Now, sometimes surgeons just can't get out all of the tumour. Sometimes the tumour is in locations where they can't quite get at it and get it all out. The other thing we look at is whether the tumour has spread on the spine MRI and on the lumbar puncture. And also, we want to look at what subtype of medulloblastoma the patient has. Remember, we had those three appearances under the microscope, but also in the future, we're going to be using this molecular subtyping that I think I'll have to devote another episode to. So now we have to get on with some further treatment. Surgery alone is not going to cure medulloblastoma in the vast, vast majority of cases. Something else has to be done. And I'm particularly talking now about patients over the age of about three to five years. Remember I said that in the very young babies and children, we try to use less radiotherapy or no radiotherapy and use more chemotherapy. So today I'm talking more about those older children. And the standard treatment to follow the surgery in medulloblastoma is radiotherapy and then chemotherapy. So first let me talk about the radiotherapy. The radiotherapy for medulloblastoma has to treat the entire brain and spine. So we can't just give radiotherapy to that little area where the tumour was located. We have to give radiotherapy to the whole brain and spine and that's because this tumour has a particular tendency to spread away from the main tumour site in the spinal fluid and form nodules elsewhere in the brain and spine. So even if we can't see those on the MRI scans and on the spinal tap, we still need to give radiotherapy to the whole brain and spine. So that's called craniospinal radiotherapy. The area of the tumour gets an extra higher dose of radiotherapy, so more fractions of radiotherapy are given to the area of the posterior fossa or the tumour bed, but then the whole brain and spine gets a certain dose of radiotherapy. The other term for that brain and spine that's used when we talk about medulloblastoma is the neuraxis, N-E-U-R-A-X-I-S, the neuraxis. That's the whole brain and spine. And the question always comes up, what dose of radiotherapy should be used to the neuraxis? Now remember from my radiotherapy podcast, I explained radiotherapy is measured in things called grays. Grays, that's the unit of radiotherapy. 
Now, before we ever had chemotherapy, the standard treatment of medulloblastoma was with surgery and craniospinal radiotherapy with a boost dose to the posterior fossa. And the standard old dose to the neuraxis was 36 gray. So the dose to the whole brain and spine was 36 gray. And that would be given over about six weeks, the whole course of radiotherapy. You know, a, a dose of radiotherapy Monday to Friday for about six weeks. And that was the standard treatment. Now, as chemotherapy got evaluated and developed, we started reducing the dose of radiotherapy to the whole brain and spine in the patients who did not have leptomeningeal spread of disease. And so now where we find ourselves most of the time is giving 24 gray of craniospinal radiotherapy instead of 36. But we make up the difference by giving chemotherapy. So in the patients who do not have any spread of disease beyond the primary site, so they don't have anything on the spine and they don't have anything in the spinal fluid, they're the patients that we're calling standard risk patients. These days we would mostly use a dose to the whole brain and spine of 24 gray or maybe 2340 centigray. That's just to confuse you. And then follow with chemotherapy. The patients who have spread of disease though, they are what we call high risk patients and they generally need a higher dose of radiotherapy and most of the time we've stuck with that old neuraxis dose of 36 gray and then we've followed with chemotherapy. So the treatment is with craniospinal radiotherapy and chemotherapy and the key question is what dose will be given to the whole brain and spine 24 gray in the standard risk patients, usually 36 gray in the others. But there are strategies underway to try to refine these doses still further. And there have been some studies using only 18 gray, for instance, in certain situations. So don't lock in these numbers. Talk to your doctors about it and uh, they can explain the strategy. Now, the giving of craniospinal radiotherapy is a complex thing, very technical, has to be done in very expert fashion. And again, listen to my previous podcast episode, but it involves a complex planning and simulation process. Normally, they'll make a special mask and bed for the child to lie in each day for the radiotherapy. They'll take a few weeks, usually planning and coordinating it all but they'd want to start the radiotherapy often within about four weeks within about a month after the surgery. Typical course of radiotherapy involves six weeks of treatment, treatment Monday to Friday usually. The younger children will need a general anaesthetic to lie still like I described before. And what side effects might occur during the time of the radiotherapy? Some children will feel sick from whole brain radiotherapy most will have some hair loss. You can get some reduction in blood counts from the radiotherapy because it's irradiating the spine. That's a lot of bone marrow in the spine and bone marrow is meant to make blood. And so it is possible to drop the blood counts a bit during radiotherapy. In some protocols, the patient will receive some chemotherapy during the radiotherapy. That's not universal, but a lot of the time patients have received vincristine chemotherapy during the radiotherapy. There's a podcast on vincristine 
And of course, the patient's still getting over this big, huge operation, and so they need ongoing rehabilitation. They might be seeing the physiotherapist or the physical therapist, the occupational therapist. They've got to get moving and get back their strength, etc. But anyway, that's about six weeks of radiotherapy, and then normally there's a several-week break before getting on to the chemotherapy. Now, after the radiotherapy, like I said, a few weeks off, and then normally we'd repeat the MRI scans. That would be to check that everything is still clear, or if there was disease, to see whether it's improved during the radiotherapy. We may repeat the lumbar puncture as well before getting on to the chemotherapy. So during these weeks of break after the radiotherapy, we'll be making plans for the chemotherapy to follow. So we'll be testing the child's hearing and their kidney function. We'll need to put in a central line. And we may have to have discussions about fertility. Some of the drugs we use can affect fertility. And in some situations, it might be appropriate to look at something being done to preserve fertility. For instance, uh, we might look at sperm banking in the older patient. We may look at harvesting some ovarian tissue in the older patient, but that's not exactly routine and not exactly established practice. But these are things that we might look at. But eventually we get on with the chemotherapy. Now, there's some different protocols out there. There's a variety of drugs that are usually used. They typically include cisplatinum. They often include cyclophosphamide. They often include vincristine. Some protocols have included carboplatin, another drug called CCNU. There are a variety of protocols that are used, and I'm not going to say that one is better than the other. There are different protocols in Europe. There are different protocols at different centres in the United States. A typical protocol for chemotherapy might go for about one year, giving drugs about every three weeks, for instance, through the central line. There are some other protocols that give a similar total amount of chemotherapy, but give it in more intensive fashion. So they give higher doses and so finish the treatment in a shorter period of time, maybe four or five or six months. So there's a variety of different protocols out there. And again, I'm not going to say one's better than the other. It's just something to talk about with your oncology team. Now, chemotherapy is a big deal. Like my other podcast said about chemotherapy, it is a big deal. It's going to be a rough time. There will be side effects. Patients develop low blood counts, may need transfusions, will be susceptible to infection, hair loss. Nausea, vomiting is a problem, particularly with cisplatinum. Maintaining nutrition can be a particular issue. It's a big deal to give this chemotherapy. Patients get through it. They manage. But it's, it's, it tends to be a pretty busy and rough time. But like I said, people get through it. Now, what's the future going to hold in terms of medulloblastoma treatment? Well, like I said, there's these new molecular subgroups that we've identified in medulloblastoma. So now we can divide medulloblastoma into four different types according to the DNA findings. And that may end up changing the way we treat patients. There may be patients that we identify where there's room to reduce the therapy because the outlook is so good. 
So in particular to see can we reduce the radiotherapy dose to the whole brain? Can we reduce the amount of chemotherapy we need? One of the other types might have a specific drug suitable for it. And then some of the less favourable subtypes of medulloblastoma, well, they're ones where we need to identify new drugs and new treatments and try to improve things. So future studies are going to look at treatment being assigned according to these molecular subtypes, and this will take place within well-designed clinical trials. The next thing I want to talk about is the long-term side effects from the treatment of medulloblastoma. And this is an important subject, and in particular, we have to talk about that craniospinal radiotherapy. Like I said, we try to reduce the dose of radiotherapy, but particularly the dose to the whole brain and spine, and that's because whole brain radiotherapy can have an effect on learning abilities. Now, in particular, that risk is higher in very young children. And so, like I said, under the age of about three or four or maybe five years, we look to use more chemotherapy and try not to give radiotherapy to the whole brain. After the age of about five years, the impact of radiotherapy becomes somewhat less, but it's still an important consideration and we still have to pay close attention to learning ability and whether there will be any impact on a child's ability to learn and achieve academically. So you can see why we very much wish we could find an alternative to giving whole brain and spine radiotherapy. This is a very important consideration. But we do have to cure the cancer. The other consideration as far as any impact on learning ability is the dose of radiotherapy that's given to the whole brain. Remember I said we can use a lower dose in the standard risk patients and we prefer to do that so that there will be less impact on learning ability. And so a lot of the time, patients who are going to have craniospinal radiotherapy might have something called neurocognitive testing performed. And this is testing to look at, you know, measures of IQ and processing speed and memory, etc., all of those things. And these are tests that then can be repeated over the years to see how the child is going. Sometimes they're not quite up to it in those early weeks after the surgery, of course. They've had a big operation and they're big, long, complex tests, those neurocognitive tests. Another organ that can be affected by the craniospinal radiotherapy is the pituitary gland. The pituitary gland sort of sits there in the middle of your brain almost and it makes hormones that go elsewhere in the body to tell other glands what to do. So the pituitary gland frequently will be impacted by the radiotherapy and not function properly. If we look at the various hormones that the pituitary gland normally makes, then we can see what might happen. The pituitary gland normally makes growth hormone. You know that growth hormone that the cheating athletes and cyclists were all taking, growth hormone? Well, that's made by the pituitary gland, and radiotherapy may impair the production of growth hormone. And so after a patient's treated for medulloblastoma, we pay very close attention to their growth because if we see that they're not growing at the right rate, then we have to test them for growth hormone deficiency. 
And if we find that they're not making growth hormone, then we may need to put them on growth hormone treatment for a few years so that they can achieve a final height that's better. Pituitary gland also makes a hormone called TSH that tells the thyroid gland what to do, makes a hormone called ACTH that tells the adrenal glands what to do, and the pituitary makes hormones called LH and FSH. LH and FSH are important in telling the ovaries what to do. So the menstrual cycle comes about because LH and FSH tell the ovaries what to do. And so if they aren't working properly, the patient can go into puberty too early or too late or not at all. And so we have to watch for proper pubertal development. LH and FSH also tell the testicles what to do. And again, if the LH and FSH are incorrectly produced, then the patient may go into puberty too early or too late or not at all. So as a routine after craniospinal radiotherapy, I would send patients off to see an endocrinologist. Endocrinologists are the doctors that look after hormones in your body. So they look after diabetes a lot, but they also look after pituitary function. And they can monitor the pituitary function right through childhood and then into adult life. Another effect of the radiotherapy can be on the backbone. We're giving whole brain and spine radiotherapy. And so the vertebral bodies of the backbone can be affected. And in particular, we may see that the patient doesn't grow as much as they would normally have done so at the back bones. So they'll still grow in the arms and the legs, but their vertebral height might be slightly reduced. And of course, as with any radiotherapy, it does bring a slightly increased risk of actually getting another tumour later in life. So getting a second malignant neoplasm as a complication of the radiotherapy. So that's something that may occur years and years later and something that everyone needs to be aware of. It's a slight risk, but it is a real risk. The chemotherapy can have its own long-term side effects. Cisplatinum can affect the hearing and so can the radiotherapy and the surgery, of course, And so we need to monitor hearing during cisplatinum chemotherapy. Cisplatinum can affect the kidney function. Again, something for us to monitor. Not normally a huge problem, but just something to be aware of. Chemotherapy can affect fertility, like I already mentioned. And it may be that some sort of fertility preservation strategy should be employed. I'm not saying everyone will be infertile after treatment with chemotherapy, but it is a consideration. And chemotherapy also can have a slightly increased risk of a second malignancy later in life. Leukemia, for instance, five, ten years later. Again, a slight risk, nothing like the risk that the patient faces with their existing tumour, the medulloblastoma. And of course, there may be long-term side effects from the surgery and the hydrocephalus. Now, what about the prognosis for medulloblastoma? What are the chances of curing a patient with a medulloblastoma? Well, if we look at the patients with localised medulloblastoma, the chances of cure are good. The chances of cure would be above about 75%. They might be around 80%. 
chance of being cured. Now, the chances with the high-risk medulloblastoma patients are not as good, but still we can be optimistic. A substantial proportion of patients with high-risk medulloblastoma can be cured, but the chances are not as good as in the standard-risk patients, plus we have to use higher doses of craniospinal radiotherapy to achieve those cures. In the future, we'll be able to stratify patients better now that we know about these different molecular groups. And we'll be able to identify patients who have a very good outlook and patients whose outlook is not as good. And then we can look at how should we modify treatment. And all of that, like I said, will take place within well-constructed clinical trials. So I think I'll leave it there for today for medulloblastoma. Again... It's the commonest malignant brain tumour in children, making up about 20% of childhood brain tumours. Treatment is with surgery, craniospinal radiotherapy and chemotherapy, and there are some exciting developments as far as what we might be able to do differently in the future to improve the chances of cure and to try to reduce the long-term side effects. Thank you again for listening in to my Understanding Childhood Cancer podcast. I'm Dr. Jeff, and I'll talk to you next time. Bye now.